I'm like hidden under my blanket. <laughs> Did you tell us to do that or if I make that up? <laughs> that is brilliant. <laughs> like a den. Yeah. Like a den. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think uh, I have my camera switched off because I look like a weirdo. So as long as you're comfortable, then great. It is quite cozy in here. <laughs> in here. <laughs> it's like being a kid again, making a den under the table chairs. <laughs> February is LGBTQ plus history month. And as such, I am joined by Andrew Parker, Shauka Ali and Maddie Gunn. Hi, everyone. How are you all managing lockdown three and all? Do you have the community around you, the support that you feel you need? And I, I'm not sure that anybody, I suppose, is particularly enjoying this, are they? Whatever the dynamics or the makeup of your your home, lots of us are just kind of missing that that company of being in offices or just yeah. you know, touring around as, as many of us leaders do. It just kind of adds a bit of variety and um, kind of break up to the week rather than five consecutive working days, kind of Absolutely. working 10 metres away from your bed. <laughs> you got to change, don't we, again, I think. Yeah, it's fine for me I've got the house to myself during the daytime um and then obviously my other half aunt he's at home in the evenings and the weekends so I look forward to that I'm itching to get back in an office and see some faces and just see the people I haven't seen for nearly a year now which is just crazy mm. I think for me like me and my half normally split a time between up north and in London Ooh, since lockdown he's moved up here and then so yeah it's nice to have that time together it's a funny story because when I met him it was just before my birthday and we decided to go clubbing on Canal Street in Manchester. <laughs> and back then, you never used to get ID'd or nothing, so you used to be able to just walk in. Mm-hmm. So I literally had to climb up my fourth floor bedroom window, jumping onto each of the roofs as we jumped out. <laughs> oh, my God. Jump over the fence. <laughs> and then we headed to Manchester, and that's where we met. And then we've been together ever since. So, yeah. So <laughs> How old are you now, if you don't mind me asking? Uh, 37. Oh, God, that's a long time. And living together is... Is going well? Yeah, like he's not uh, domestic at all. Like he can't use um, like the coffee machine or the vacuum or the washing machine. But <laughs> I'm teaching him bit by bit. I think it, it's difficult, isn't it? If, if you live alone, there's also the issues of, of loneliness and um, you know, not being able to see people. But then if you're um, you know, parents just now having to homeschool as well as being full-time workers in whichever job and you know parents teachers all that kind of stuff that must be impossibly difficult i think you realize it's the most basic things you miss don't you like going out for a coffee or it's not even like the big things yeah. yeah, we were saying the same at the weekend, just to being able to go for a coffee and a bit of cake in the garden centre would be a godsend yeah. right now, even though we're not in, you know, retired or what have you. It feels like that even would be a massive treat. Yeah, totally. And that that shift for you, Andrew, from uh, touring around, as you said, to to being being stuck at home, has that been, has that been lonely for you? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, no, I think I, I've been very honest with, with my team and people around me that, you know, I, I've struggled at times with my, my mental health. I've, I've gone through phases of being very highly engaged and delivering and just thinking, right, I've got this, I'm all over it, and just kind of making stuff happen as I always do. But then plenty of other days, just kind of waking up, staring at the ceiling, thinking it's Groundhog Day and here we go again, um, and really having to give give myself a good old chat to try and get myself in, in a zone um, or actually just some days just accepting I just haven't got it in me today um, and just going for a nice long walk or you know, reading a book for a while just to try and kind of take my mind off things, I suppose. So no, it's, it's been really difficult. Yeah. 
And do you think um, so much of gay culture revolves around those bars that become community hubs in their own right? Especially, I mean, you live in Brighton. Um, how have you and your friends kept a hold of that community whilst not being able to go outside? Mm. That's a, a really good question. And I, I'm not sure without sounding too dramatic, we have been able to kind of hold much of the community together when you can't socialise indoors, you know, when you can only have you know, one other person from a, a social bubble indoors. Um, that, that, that's really difficult, isn't it? To kind of have a sense of community mm -hmm. when you're by yourself or with one other person once or twice a week. You might have a movie night or ordering a pizza or something. I, I don't know how you form a sense of community. Um, yeah, and you're absolutely right. You know, Brighton especially, I suppose, is perhaps one of the more famous gay metropolises of the UK. Absolutely. It's all about going out. Um, yeah, the, the whole world kind of revolves around that. And, and to some degree, my social life does. Um whether it's, you know, kind of drag queen Sundays where you kind of bounce around from bar to bar watching different drag queens or, you know, um, quiz nights or just even just kind of hanging out, catching up with friends. It's, um, it's Brighton's a very social city like that. So, yeah, it kind of feels like the, again, without being too dramatic, the kind of, you know, the, the heart has been ripped out of the city and the community for a while. Yeah, it's super sad. Mm. <laughs> Talking about community, the elephant in the room is that our panel is not as diverse as I would have wanted it We've got Andrew and Shaukat, who are gay men. Please correct me if I'm wrong. And Maddie, you're straight, right? Yes, I am, yeah. Yeah, Maddie's an ally. So you might hear when listening to this podcast a, a lack of diversity across the queer spectrum. And that is because whereas LifeSearch has three times the number of people that identify as LGBTQ+, when compared to the most recent census data working for it, I, and this podcast rely on volunteers. And obviously, I'm not forcing anyone to take part. So yeah, this podcast is a little less diverse than I would like. But we carry on and hope to make some magic. <laughs> um, the major talking point of TV in recent weeks was It's a Sin. Have you all seen it? I've watched the first one. I've got the rest of my box to watch. So don't spoil anything if you haven't uh, seen it. I've seen them all. Um yeah, had me laughing, crying, equal measures. Sharkat, what about you? I have not seen it yet. <laughs> it's 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 Oleg Alexander, right? The guy from Years and Years. That's yeah. right. Yeah, yeah. He's the yeah. He, I wouldn't say he's the only lead. It's an it's an ensemble cast, but he is a major mm. character in it. So to the layman who is not up to date on this at all, why is it important to watch this show covering this particular subject matter? And why is it important that it's on such a major channel like Channel 4? I think Channel 4 has always been forward thinking because look what when Queer as Folk came out. I remember watching that mm. and then going to school the next day and then was talking about it. Oh, I'm so hip now because I watch Queer as Folk. <laughs> like, no, you're not hip. You just watch the TV <laughs> program, but it's so groundbreaking for the time. Mm. Because I remember when EastEnders, when Simon and Tony got together. Do you remember that, Andrew? Mm, yeah. yeah. Tiffany's yeah. brother. Yeah. And I remember that that was the first gay kiss on like on the primetime TV show. The next day, then all the newspapers came out with all the headlines like, sick this, sick that. I'm thinking, if people are reading that now, and even just a couple of weeks ago, I think it's about that program, The Sun printed something about it. And it was really disparaging. And then they took it down because I think everyone complained. And I think the fact that people are still making disparaging comments about it still shows you why it needs to be at the forefront of everyone's mm. conversations. Because people 
a lot of people still don't see it as a normal, healthy relationship. And what was Queer as Folk? Sorry, I just got not shout out. Oh, it was set in Manchester. It was such a good program when it first came out. It's about two main gay guys. Um, and then there was Charlie Hunnam as well. It was such groundbreaking for the time, though. Like, I don't think I'd ever seen anything as, like, a whole program devoted to gay culture. It was set around Canal Street, and a lot of the clubs in there, I'm like, I've been there. <laughs> <laughs> I was such a, yeah, it was such a groundbreak. Russell T. Davis, he's the one who's done the new one. Mm. Oh, was it? Did he write it? Um, it's a sin, yeah. yeah. Okay. He... He wrote, and I think Channel 4 was a perfect channel for it because, like I said, they've always been forward-thinking in regards to queer culture and LGBTQ plus culture. But yeah, it was interesting seeing everyone's reactions at school the next day about it. Oh, watch this. Did you see this? Did you see that? I'm thinking, yeah, I did. <laughs> oh, wow. There really had been nothing like it on TV at that point. No. It came out, came out in 1999, um, and, and, and truly there'd been nothing like it. Like you say, Shawcat just entirely set around mainly gay men, you know, gay men, their lives, their friendships, their romances, their nightlife. Yeah, very um, graphic, you know, physically in terms of some of the yeah. things that happened. It also touched on so how difficult it is sometimes for gay men to have relationships about the kind of undercurrent of drugs that you often find in the gay world. Um, it was just a heck of a thing to watch. Um, <laughs> yeah, it really shook things up. It really did. It was very good, though. <laughs> it's still on all four. It's been on there, I think, since all four launched 15 odd years yeah. ago. So it's worth a few hours of your time. It's still on there. It's a really good question, Angus. I'll just be mulling that over as Shoutcat was talking. I guess maybe each community, if that's an okay word to use, has something that's really powerful and personal to them. And we use, I suppose, the phrase kind of never forget in, in, in many different circumstances. And um, yeah, you know, AIDS you know, for 30 odd years, 40 years nearly, has been absolutely kind of central to most gay men's lives and, and when you look at um yes globally you know, over 30 million people have died from aids um and as we're living in a, an era now where we're being affected by another pandemic that's kind of racing its way through the population um it, it seems like a, a timely place to just to kind of stop and reflect that um whether it is hiv or coronavirus or, or, or many others um yeah, these things happen, these things come along, these things kill people. Um, but I guess HIV just had stigma attached to it, which perhaps coronavirus and others doesn't necessarily have, that it was largely afflicting um, gay men. And there's some debate, actually. I mean, I've seen it recently. People are often saying this is the first epidemic since the, the Spanish flu of 1920 or whatever it was, um, because some some scientists call the, the HIV AIDS an epidemic and others call it a pandemic as mm. division. And I, I personally wonder if that division is caused by some kind of, uh, well, discomfort, some kind of disparaging thought. Mm. Just thinking actually, I guess maybe because coronavirus and Spanish flu are just kind of airborne things that you pick up, whereas with HIV there has to be an act almost, isn't there? Whether it's a sexual act or the use of needles, or whatever, there has to be an act in order to contract it. Maybe that just gives it a layer of just something unpleasant in other people's minds. I think the other thing that programme has done is just remind everybody how recent things were as well. That, that was only in the 80s. I think it just goes to show how little um, things have moved on in some ways and how well they have moved on in other ways too. And I think... If you talk to somebody now, a younger person now, their views 
um, are very different and perhaps don't quite understand stigma and, and attitudes that were in place even just that, you know, 40 years ago in the 80s that might have been around. So it kind of helps mm. people learn that bit of history. And when you say that some areas haven't moved on at all, what areas are those specifically? I think there's just pockets of um, sort of opinion and beliefs, aren't there, that struggle to accept, you know, there's no badness or dirtiness about, you know, somebody's sexual preferences or somebody's gender identities and things like that. Because in their local community, it just wasn't something that they haven't had many people that are gay in that community or trans in that community. So they're not used to it. They're not familiar with people like that. So it's unknown to them. Mm. It's almost something learned, I suppose. Absolutely. And I think there's even um, groups or people within the LGBTQ plus community that need to have their, their views on things you know, challenged. I think that, that, that there still clearly is a problem within the community of, um, I suppose, kind of bigotry against other parts of the community. Um, you know, very often I've been out with, you know, uh, with um, gay male friends who, and have heard them you know, say some quite unpleasant things about trans people that might be in the bar that we're in or, you know, or gay women. Um, and also when you look at racism within the LGBTQ plus community, there was a bit of research done, I think it was three years ago by Stonewall, um, and that said that half of BAME LGBTQ plus people said that they'd faced discrimination within the LGBTQ plus community, half of them, mm. even within our community. There's a lot of work for us to be doing before we start almost having a go at other communities for the way they view us. I walked into a gay bar and the bouncer said to me, oh, you know it's a gay bar, don't you? <laughs> yeah, I do. And I think it's just <laughs> a preconception of um, of who's gay and who's not gay. Mm. Yeah, I've had that plenty yeah. of times over the years as well. I think most people, yeah, let's say I'm not the more kind of flamboyant end of, of things that some people can be. And very often when people have realised that I am gay, either you know, at live search or beyond, you know, a proportion of them have been kind of quite surprised to, to kind of hear that. So yeah, I've been challenged no end of times about, you know, you do know this is a gay bar, mate, don't you? Yes, I do. <laughs> and it's exactly the reason I'm here. Thanks very much. <laughs> <laughs> that's brilliant <laughs> it's so fun it still makes me laugh and it's like ah oh. i think the community thing like it took my parents a well to be fair it took my mom a long time to get used to the fact but uh, we've only started speaking again after about seven or eight years so my dad still can't get the fact that i'm gay like he don't understand it at all like what is gay i'm like <laughs> Ah, oh, just some of the conversations. Mm. Yeah, so she still has her moments. But then my dad, I don't think he'll ever get used to the fact that... I think because obviously he's Muslim and he's brought up that way and mm. I don't think he would ever comprehend the fact that how someone can be gay. Mm-hmm. Also, I think that religion plays a part in, in that too. Um, my mum was, was hugely religious, um, a very deeply Pentecostal upbringing. Um, yeah, when I told her I was gay, when I guess I was 21, 22, kind of 95-ish, um, and then I, I started work at roughly around the same time. So it took me a heck of a long time to work out that I was gay and actually, what does that mean? Um, so I, I suppose I was kind of very much a late bloomer com- compared to some other people. Um, she just absolutely lost her mind over it. Um, we had no... Well, we've never really had a functioning relationship anyway, but we certainly didn't for about two years after that. We had no contact at all for two years. Um, she just couldn't get her head around it. And how's your relationship with her now? 
as functional as it ever was. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I, I'm not going to pretend for a second I have a, a great relationship with my family, but that's actually nothing at all to do with me being gay. Um, so, but no, at least now she can, I don't know if she's ever made her peace with it, but yeah, it's a more functional relationship than it was before. And, and to be fair, you know, you know, I ha- she has met partners of mine since and kind of welcomed them into the family home for dinners and that kind of thing. So to give her some credit, she, she, she's worked hard to try and broaden her mind. That's nice. Shalka, I just want to come back to, to your, your parents. Can you, just, can you talk a bit more about what it is that you think uh, makes it so hard for them to accept you and to accept uh, gay? <laughs> I think in the Asian community, especially the Muslim community, it's very drilled in from the beginning, like... I went to mosque when I was younger and it's very much a sin, it's against Islam, you're not supposed to do this, man and a woman. So it's drilled down into you. And then I guess when I started figuring out who I was, it's hard to speak to anyone about it because you don't know who you can trust and things. So I guess a lot of it was figuring it out on my own Mm. and trying to go from there. And then I guess the way they found out didn't help either because it was kind of just got caught and um, yeah, and it kind of went downhill from there for a little bit. Mm. But then, like, I've had conversations with my, not many conversations, like the odd one, but just they come out with comments like, oh, we should have sent you Pakistan to get married. We should have got you married off. I'm like, get me married off isn't really gonna change who I am, to be fair. <laughs> Absolutely. Like, and I've had mates who have been sent to Pakistan and I've got married to girls when their parents have found out they were gay. And it's, they come back over here, then they go out and do their life. And like, it's not really fair on either one of them, to be fair. Yeah. So it's quite hard in the community now. Still, like, I got mates who are hiding it and they're in the 30s and 40s. And it's like, they're leading double lives. Mm. And I was listening to something recently that, that talked about how those lessons that you learn so early in life, those like, those things that you were taught before the ages of age of seven, really, how they, even when you learn how wrong they are, there's still a part of you that holds it. And I'm not, I guess I'm not, this is not specifically about, about sexuality. It can be about anything, really. Um, but I wonder if there's a part of you that remembers the, the early things that were said about uh, homosexual people. Yeah, I remember my, obviously, stuff coming on TV and having to switch it over quickly so they couldn't, just not to get embarrassed and things. Like, I, when I was younger, I was at that part. Obviously, I had a couple of girlfriends when I was, like, 11 or 12 years old. I'm thinking, if I can get a girlfriend, then maybe it would be working out for the better. But then, obviously, it didn't really work out that way. <laughs> mm. So it's just having to work out who you are as a person and going forward from there. I think that's what I did in the end because I thought, obviously, it's not great to be hiding what you are at the end of the day. I think it can do your mental health really bad as well. Yeah, absolutely. Talking about figuring out who you are, Maddie, do you want to tell us about Donna? So um, I was um, probably around about 12, 13, around that age. Um, Donna was actually um, a friend of my mum's. They met through um, music and some um, hobbies that they shared. We knew um, Donna originally as Duncan, um, and throughout her journey, she identified, obviously, um, she she wanted to be female. She identified 
mentally as a female and decided that that was the right thing to do for her. Um, It took a long while for her to come to that decision. She waited until her father had passed um, and things like that before she even acted on bringing that to life and bringing Donna to fruition. So um, Donna spent some time with us um, and so my mum sort of spent some time going to some appointments and assessments and things with her once that process actually started. It was quite a lonely one for her because obviously um, she'd she'd lost, you know, her dad and, and waited and kept that part of her tucked away all that time before she felt she was in a position that she could... Um, move forward and uh, and sort of make herself happy and, and make herself into who she felt she should be. And um, yeah, developed into Donna, who was probably one of the most bubbly, lovely characters we knew. Um, but it was, yeah, heartbreaking in a way to see that process and, and the waiting and everything else that surrounded it as well. Because, you know, back then, there, it was sort of early 90s, that kind of time, there was still an awful lot of sort of stigma and, and not a lot of acceptance around at the time too. So it was quite difficult to see. And yeah, she thankfully felt able to sort of share and open up to my mum, which was lovely. I'm quite interested because I, I remember myself aged 12, 13, and yeah, lots of rumbunctious uh, little boys running around using lots mm. of uh, yeah horrible words that wouldn't be accepted today um and obviously you I, I doubt you were ever a, a horrible little little anything um <laughs> but um I'm, I'm wondering if if there was any confusion to you at that time age 12 or 13 yeah of course there wasn't um it wasn't confusion as such, more just questions. Mm. Um, luckily, mum, sort of mum and dad have always brought us up to be very um, open and respectful of the fact that there are lots of people in this world and there are lots of people in this world for a reason. We're all different. We all bring something different to the table and that can be through views, opinions, preferences, whatever it might be. So kind of been lucky in that sense in that it's quite an open mm family and um we taught to question and understand things rather than sort of make judgments so I'm, I'm always grateful for that but um yeah so more than confusion it was questions and luckily enough it you know because of being brought up in that open environment we had the opportunity to ask those questions um and just understand it a bit more and just in a, in a way that's you know as we were always taught just being respectful when we're asking and not you know what might happen to your willy or something like that it's more <laughs> along the lines of well why do you feel you know that this is the right thing for you and just understanding it and realizing this is a person and they've got feelings and you respect those feelings and if you don't understand something then you ask a question so that that can help you to understand it more so that was it it's a really wonderful thing to be raised in that environment i was gonna say your parents sound awesome Maddie. yeah definitely yeah absolutely <laughs> They're good eggs. They're good eggs. Um, don't get me wrong, you know, other people, um, there's certainly judgments and, you know, comments made. And for example, my brother's a bit younger. Um, so he, he was hearing phrases like, oh, you know, you know, a tranny and things like that. And, um, oh, you're friends with a he, she and things, you know, bits and pieces like yeah. that. Horrible. It's so funny that, isn't it? How it's all about the, the environment that you create. If you create a a questioning environment, then that can really serve anyone kind of born into that environment already and coming into that environment throughout the whole of their life. 
But if you do the opposite, then it just doesn't, it stifles everyone. Mm. Kids aren't born homophobic. Of course they're not. Are they like, so like people yeah. like, are not born racist. It's, it's like you said, this environment they're brought up in and someone is brought up in an environment saying, fag this, fag that, homophobe, he, she. It's going to be, It's everything is always a learned behaviour from the environment you're around. So I think yeah. it's the... It's, it's not the kids, it's the, it's the parents who are obviously installing that into them. The importance of positive role models around you as well to show you a, a different way of doing yeah. things. Speaking of which, it brings me nicely on to my, my next kind of topic. <laughs> Glad to help, Angus. <laughs> <laughs> no, I just you know, sparked a thought. Um, so within your, your working lives, how has that changed from when you started work to, to now? Um, so, yeah, I suppose when I started working life, that very much coincided with still being kind of quite confused about things. So I suppose I was asexual. You know, I, I didn't flirt with boys that I used to work with. I didn't flirt with girls that I used to work with. Um, I certainly at school wasn't, you know, um, down the park on a Friday night with the, you know, the girls and the boys and bottles of cider under the slide. That certainly wasn't <laughs> what I was doing. Um, yeah. And I don't think that I ever told any colleague that I was gay for a very long time. I can't even remember who it was. Um, you very much, I think, or certainly I, I did kind of built a bit of a suit of armor around me just to be very kind of straight down the line. And this is Andrew. Um, and then slowly, by, but slowly, then you might kind of start to let people in on a, on a very selective basis to the point where now clearly talking to 500 searches and beyond that I think everybody knows that I'm gay and it really doesn't matter. <laughs> it's amazing how that's shifted probably in the last 10 years. I remember like, uh, coming out of school and hearing that a few of my school friends had come out and it was like, oh my God, no way. It was just such a big thing. And and now it's just like, and? Mm. You kind of shrug your shoulders. Yeah, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> and I suppose just thinking of role models, that I guess is the benefit of role models, isn't it? When you see other people around you through school or college or friends or neighbours coming out, that almost kind of gives you permission or, or, or you know, to, to, to do it yourself. Um, so, yeah, I, I guess I obviously didn't grow up in the 60s or 50s where there really were no kind of cultural role models. Mm. Um, but I suppose even coming out in the 90s, you know, queerest folk hadn't landed at that point. I suppose we might just have been at the start of Graham Norton's career. But I, I can't think of anybody even culturally yeah. that you would look up to and go, there's a gay man just kind of doing his thing and is is all right with it and people are, are accepting him. So now that it just is more of a shrug of the shoulders and we have each of us has more of those role models around us, I think that just that kind of creates the atmosphere for, for more people to come out more safely. Hmm. All right. We're kind of coming towards the end of our conversation. Um, is there anything that you guys uh, want to share specifically? I suppose the one thing I've been thinking about, I, I touched on it a bit earlier, is that I, th I think just generally, not just in terms of LGBTQ plus issues, but whether it's you know racism or disability or anything, I think we just all need to be a lot kinder to each other. They're just taking our time to kind of educate ourselves a bit more about other people's lives and where they come from and their histories. I think that's one thing I've been thinking about a lot. Um, and certainly having moved to Brighton, I did a, a year or so of volunteering at a local LGBTQ plus drop-in centre. Um, and you know, anybody would walk through the door with any kinds of issues. Um, yeah, I, I came out to my parents last night. They've thrown me out. I've got nowhere to sleep. What do I do? Right through to, yeah, I, I think I'm transitioning. I think that's where I need to go. But how do I do it? 
um, just yeah, all of those just kind of stories has really kind of influenced me that you you have no idea what other people's backgrounds are. And as Maddie was saying earlier, you, you just don't know when you kind of walk past people in the street. So let's just be a bit bit more decent to each other. Mm. It kind of, it starts from the, the most kind of typical and basic of, of places, like the, the talking about someone behind their back, mm. talking about a friend to my mum. I just don't, I don't really know what's going on with that friend. I don't really know the full story. So who yeah. am I? I mean, yeah, we all love to talk. We all love to gossip. And, and I think we do need it at some level, but it's just where, where does the, the unkindness begin? Mm. I think some people would be unkind without even thinking they're being unkind, or I think sometimes. Yeah, making assumptions doesn't always help. And even if somebody has trusted you enough to come out to you or share something personal about themselves with you, perhaps try not to pigeonhole them then into something, into a category, or use certain phrases or terms just because they've told shared something with you. Ask them what they prefer to be referred to as. So, for example, you, you mentioned earlier about using the word queer. Some Some groups have you know embraced that and reclaimed it some have still thoroughly rejected it because of the the negative connotations that it has oh, it's, just, okay. it's not necessarily okay for everyone mm. so perhaps you know ask the people that you're friends with and you're close to what they prefer mm. awesome right if you're all happy with with what you've said then um i'll bring this little thing to a close thanks so much for joining me and um this has been another episode of Searching for Elephants. Hope you've all enjoyed listening. Hope you've learned something. Thank you. And um, we'll be back soon. Have a nice night, everybody. Thanks so much, guys. Searching for Elephants was mixed and composed by Patrick Bagri, and the podcast was created and edited by me, Angus Bagri. If you liked what you heard, please follow, subscribe, and give us that five-star review. Lots of love. Life search.